0: It was Monday the 24th of March 1997, and at ANZ Stadium the Canberra Raiders lost 24-8 to the Brisbane Broncos, their fourth loss in as many matches to open the 1997 Super League season. Though they would eventually recover enough to finish third on the ladder and end their season a game shy of the grand final, the signs were not good, and a dominant era in rugby league had reached its end. This is part three of the Telstra Cup the 34th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy?
1: Very well, mate. How are you? I'm
0: good. Uh, here for part three of our 1997 Super League recap, uh, in which we'll be looking at the three non-grand finalists who managed to make the semi-finals. that being the Penrith Panthers, the Canterbury Bulldogs, and your Canberra Raiders. <laughs> uh, as a Raiders fan, what are your memories of this season for the Raiders?
1: Not that great from memory. I, I haven't got any clear memories, to be honest. I just the jerseys were a bad start, and then yeah. things didn't go well from there.
0: Yeah, and I think there's some common threads to each of those three seasons, and and I don't want to draw too long a bow in trying to argue that there's some cohesive overarching narrative, but there are some commonalities. First of all, each of the three were being coached by a club legend, that being Roy Simmons at the Panthers, Chris Anderson at the Dogs, and Mal Meninga at the Raiders. So Mal in his first year, Anderson in his last year, and and Royce right in the middle of his run, and on top of that all three teams were at the point where they were trying to recapture the magic. They had good eras or periods of success a few years before, and they were trying to get it back together. And we'll see how that played out for the three teams. But three very compelling individual team seasons, I thought, and we'll get into all of it. We'll start with Penrith, who finished in fifth place. And As I said, they had their coach in place in Roy Simmons, who arrived at the club late in 1994 when Gus departed. And when you think about the fact that you had Royce in place, Brandy came back, MG was a year away from returning. There's something ironic in the fact that the way they were trying to put back the pieces after everything that happened in 1992 and beyond, in some part involved getting that same cast of characters back. And trying to write the shit from within.
1: But who better than Brandy and Royce, you know?
0: Yeah, I think Royce was the right coach for the right time. Especially, you know, we're going to talk about Craig Gower's emergence. I think Royce was a good coach for him to be entering the league into. And it just also helped to develop a good spirit within the team. And I think for 40 years now, Royce has just been one of those figures in rugby league that no one has a bad word to say about. Puts a smile on everyone's face. Just the laconic nature of him and his mannerisms. are Very popular figure in rugby league.
1: I was just thinking as I'm reading the dossier, there's so few of these guys around now, these genuine knockabouts. You get the odd one, but most of the characters in inverted commas are sort of like trying to be a character now. Yeah, yeah. And it's embarrassing. Yeah. Royce is the number one rugby league quality of having no airs and graces.
0: Yeah, totally. And so... Brandy came back, and I think we've talked enough about the emotional side of that, and you know what he meant to the region, what the region meant to him, and all of that sort of thing. What I want to focus on is his form on the field, which was electric in the early part of the season. He won a recall to the New South Wales team in Super League uh, before getting injured and having the season derailed. But like he was truly back to his best before that injury, after a you know couple of middling years at the Warriors.
1: Look at those wasted years. It's such a shame. The talent this bloke had.
0: Yeah, and it was just good that he did get back and got a nice ending. Uh, He was doing it in an unfamiliar number of 55. So uh, (laughs) according to Brandy, he was on honeymoon when the numbers were being handed out. Uh, So he asked for the biggest number they had, which was 55. So Craig Gower was there in the number seven jersey.
1: Would you consider that in rugby league terms a sign of disrespect? You know Brandy's at the club and he's like a young gun. Is him poaching the seven a sign of disrespect to the legend?
0: It is odd, isn't it? I actually hadn't stopped to consider that. But yeah, like you'd think they'd keep the jersey warm for him seeing he was just going on a honeymoon.
1: I would think that if anyone but Brandy, that could cause a feud in rugby league. Brandy's just going to be like, yeah, whatever. I'm a gentleman. But yeah. say it was um, some pig-headed rugby league type, which is 99% of them. It could be a club feud over that.
0: Absolutely. Like, it's no small thing, is it? So it was just lucky that he was magnanimous enough to take it in good spirits and, you know, add a bit of humor to the mix with <laughs> Get asking for the biggest <laughs> number they had. <laughs> But it wasn't just on the field that Brandy was having a good season. This was the year that he actually went on to win Sailor of the Century's Battle of the Codes.
1: I feel like he's our best representative for that as well. Of, yeah. Of the era. There wouldn't be too many Brainiacs.
0: No. Not that he comes across as, you know, some dumb meathead footballer. But I didn't necessarily see him as an intellectual. But, yeah, he won it in the final uh, beat. All black Eric Rush. Jason Dunstall from Hawthorne and Matthew Horsley from uh, Wollongong City uh, soccer team. He
1: was the dark horse, Horsley. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But let's talk about the player who did get that number seven jersey in Craig Gower, which uh, was putting it mildly to say he burst onto the scene in 1997. In the Super League magazine, Greg Pritchard wrote, meteoric is too wimpy a word to describe his rise. After all, before turning 19 last week, Gower had already made distinguished debuts at hooker for New South Wales and Australia.
1: I remember him as the hooker in that era and being so excited about it, going, like, oh, it's a new breed. He's taking over the Mark Soden role. He's getting out of dummy half. you know."
0: Yeah. And I associate him so closely with Super League because, you know, as I've stated a few times now, I wasn't watching any Super League football at the time. So I kept on hearing this name, Craig Gower, Craig Gower. Oh, he's playing for New South Wales. Oh, you know, he's 18 and he's debuted for Australia. And I was like, who is Craig Gower? And, you know, um, I guess he's pretty good.
1: The only part of you that saw Craig Gower is your back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was actually surprised that he didn't debut in 1997. He played 12 games for the Panthers in 1996. So it's not like he came completely out of the blue in 1997, but it was certainly one of the great breakout years.
1: It just goes to show what a blur that time was, right? Because I had no idea about that either.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll just read a couple of quotes that uh, put into context the buzz around him at the time. So ET said, he's the hottest property I've ever seen. I couldn't believe how cool he was in his first test. The kid has got all the skills. Some guys, you know, they are footballers. He's one. And Tim Sheen's similar words. You don't call someone a champion at the beginning of their career. It comes at the end. But if he keeps playing consistently and continues to improve, then I can at least say we'll be watching a champion in the making. And I want you to think about those words in relation to where Gower's career ended up and also in relation to the obvious comparison for a teenage phenom coming out of Penrith, which is Freddie. The Freddie comparisons were everywhere in 1997, you know, Peter Jackson saying, the similarities to Brad Fittler are, well, a little bit spooky. And the similarities were there in terms of the meteoric rise, but stark contrast, you know, where their careers ended up, where they're placed in the pantheon of the game now.
1: Well, that's unfair because Freddie was the ultimate prodigy. Yeah. Better than Brasher, better than than any teenage prodigy, better than Um, Hannay. Straight away, that's an unfair comparison, so... And I think that might have derailed him a little bit in the mid part of his career when the honeymoon period wore off. Thank God he finished really strong.
0: Yeah, like it wasn't a bad career by any stretch. But when you think of his kind of off-field exploits, you know, Freddie was a party boy too. And at age 23 or whatever, Freddie was handed the Australian captaincy when everyone knew he was, you know, a bit of a loose cannon on the drink. You know, we were still five years away from Glebe police station <laughs> when he was handed the Australian captaincy. Blown so free. it's not like he ever lost that kind of element to his personality, at least not at that point in his life. But there was just something about the head on his shoulders that he was entrusted with the Australian captaincy and he lived up to that trust. Whereas Gower just didn't kind of have the same makeup.
1: i tell you what it is, mate. It's attitude because in that era particularly, I mean, I mean, every era of rugby league, everyone's loose on the drink when they're young and, you know, they are yep. their scallywags and they're doing this, that and the other. It's the intent. If you're Joey or Freddie, you're just having a good time. You're not hurting anybody, but there's this, like, belligerent attitude of some of the guys want to mm. be, like, nasty or, you know, causing trouble for civilians or whatever like, they're doing for a laugh. It's the attitude in it, I think. Yeah. The classic kooji uh, incident, right? Like that's not something you'd think you'd hear Freddie or Joey doing, or That it probably mm. did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Whereas the, you know, harassing several junior members of the Pierce family, that's something <laughs> you, you definitely wouldn't see <laughs> happening from those folks. <laughs>
1: that's one of the great grub uh, moments though. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, it was just really weird reading about this season and putting it into the context of where Gower's career ended up and the esteem he's generally held in the game, which, you know, he's certainly not a universally beloved figure. And I think even among Panthers fans, there's a you know a bit of frustration
1: there. Well, it's one of your great quotes there, that if you can play, you will play, because these guys that have just got it innately, they can just still do it on the field no matter what. So you use yep. that skill to finish off his career as a leader and a premiership winner.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and he certainly could play in 1997. So despite losing the jersey number to Gower, Brandy (laughs) wasn't going to actually lose his halfback position. So with Brandy back, Gower had to switch positions and play hooker. He'd never played there before. And, you know, at first was a bit reticent, but Royce was there, someone who'd been there, won a comp with the Panthers at hooker, played for Australia at hooker. Uh, And so...
1: All due respect to Royce, there's a totally different position that Gower was playing than he was playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I don't think Royce was playing him at hooker and telling him, this is how I did it, this is how you're going to do it. It was knowing that he was a halfback and knowing that he brought, you know, a spark to the game at a time that the position was changing, that I thought it was really astute and Gower, yeah. like, more than delivered.
1: It blows me a way that these great footballers can just... Oh, by the way, you're playing in an entirely different position. You've never played in your junior's mm. your whole life. And they just take to it, right?
0: Yeah. And, and it was straight out of the gates. Yeah. Like by the end of March, he was already being talked about being a front runner for the New South Wales hooking spot, which, you know, he was duly named there and then, you know, made his Australian debut shortly after.
1: <laughs> Part of my pitch to uh, strangers about the Super League um, experience was like, mate, you've got young players like Gower and Adamson. You know, like the tearaways, you know, he's changing the game. I was right on board, yeah. right on board with that hooker <laughs> position, believe
0: me. Yeah, yeah. It was a genuine evolution. Like you can see him as one of the key links in how that position changed into the 2000s.
1: I think there was a Mark Soden article on Rugby League Week about how he was changing the position of hooker maybe 94 or something and erode that from that day onwards to now and I still talk about it like I'm an expert.
0: Yeah. Ah, uh, but Gal wasn't the only teenager on the rise. With Tony Tour making his debut also at eighteen, and he made a big splash as well in nineteen ninety seven. He was a gun,
1: and yeah, would you put him in the forefront? We talk about Olsen Filipana, but there wasn't a like you know an influx of Pacifica players until the post tour era. I think I think he's one of the great leaders of that charge.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you got Solomon Hamono making a breakthrough a couple of years earlier. It was a sprinkling. Yeah.
1: And he was like the truly great player for so many years.
0: Yeah. And then I think in the premiership year, having Nullivar there as well, you know, the hair bears and standing out physically as well as dominating on the field. Like I think that had a massive impact. And I think they were also kind of playing guitar and singing together, you know, 20 years before Luai and uh, Toa were doing it. So (laughs) pioneers in more than one way.
1: Um. I just thought he was the best second rower. Mm. I will say this, like, I thought he was going to get bigger than he ever did in his career. Like He was just very good for a long period, but he was never like the greatest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think he reached his ceiling, but that ceiling like maybe wasn't as high as it looked like being early on. But thinking about Pulitura emerging this year, Gower emerging, it made me think about the fact that 91, great junior base coming through, falls apart for reasons we've discussed many times. 2003, another great core of juniors, along with, you know, some elite bought talent coming in as well. That was kind of like not the true team of local juniors like the 91 and the most recent incarnation of the Panthers. But still, that era kind of falls away relatively quickly. And this is why I'll always defend Gus. You know, people make the jokes about the five year plan or whatever, but. Penrith have developed so many players over the years. There have been so many false starts. It took someone like Gus coming in to actually truly deliver on that promise.
1: Uh, I still think he's doing the bare minimum. <laughs> I, feel I really do.
0: Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, someone had to do it. Like, <laughs> someone
1: had to do the bare minimum.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it clearly wasn't being done.
1: If only we could do the bare minimum in the Newcastle uh, Junior Nursery. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh. You know, there's a decent sprinkling of footballers on the South Coast, too, if the Dragons ever (laughs) want to get it together. (laughs) Uh, But let's keep it uh, Super League focused in 1997 and stay on the Panthers. I mentioned local juniors plus bought talent from elsewhere. One of those was Ryan Girdler, who had been at the Panthers a few years by 1997. But this was a real breakout year for him, too. Like, I think Peter Jackson's assessment, I think, is fairly true across the game. Ryan is another bloke who's elevated himself into being one of the stars of the game. I must admit that until this year, I thought he was just a run-of-the-mill first grader. Okay, I'll put my hand up and say I was wrong.
1: Before I comment on Girdler, I want to talk about the age-old doctrine of putting your hand up in rugby league. The cure-all for anything from misjudging Ryan Girdler to uh, attempted murder. Yeah, <laughs> I think they missed a trick at Nuremberg. <laughs> they shouldn't have went with a Nuremberg defense. They should have went with the Pretty put- yeah. <laughs> defense. But um, he was like class at Steelers even, and yeah, he looked good there. And then he went to the next level. And I think his Pretty Boy looks hurt him in that people thought he was just a bit of a ponce or something. But he was really, really good.
0: I agree, and I think Royce agrees too. His quote on Girdle was: "Ryan's been a good player for years now. It's just that no one outside the club seemed to know."
1: It's funny because, like, when he had the ball, you always thought there was a break coming, half a break, or, like, mm. you know, it was just a slice through like a knife through butter. And um, yeah, it was underrated.
0: But yeah, I think Super League was really the making of him in terms of getting everyone's attention. And he got a chance and he never looked back. I think he had genuine claims of being the best centre in the world at points over the next few years.
1: I think he was by the time it got to those like dominating New South Wales teams. With the- yeah. Yeah. Early 2000s, whatever it was.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, so he was voted the Panthers Player of the Year, the Super League Top Point Scorer of the Year, with a 93% percentage in terms of accuracy.
1: Well, that was absolutely incredible then, still is today. But back then, that was post the, you know, we're laughing about the 78% um, Super boot mm. era, of um, and Co., but is he the actual catalyst for the modern goal kicker where it's you know 80% or you're a bust?
0: Yeah, I think so. And uh, I'm kicking myself for not doing this in advance. But a friend of the show, Dave Hunter, has pulled us up on our ridiculing of those Superboot era percentages, saying that it was a whole different thing kicking with sand as opposed to kicking tee. So I wanted to go and check whether Girdle was using a T or not. Uh I forgot to do that. So if anyone knows for sure, let us know. Otherwise we'll uh we'll, I
1: don't think we'll he find was out and mention it. I,
0: I don't think he was either. Like I think he was just before that era. And and if that's true, then that like really is remarkable.
1: It was the sort of switch over from the upright ball to the pointing forward ball from the mid nineties, and then that was really pointed forward by this era, and that was accuracy was increasing. Mm which I still don't yeah. know how to get distance with the pointing forward ball. I can never kick it yeah. any further than 20 <laughs> metres when I do it.
0: Uh, but so anyway, it was a, a great year of goal kicking for him. He actually broke the Panthers club record uh, of 26 points in a game. He already shared that record uh, with Greg Alexander and Shane Marshall with a previous game of 24, but in a game against Warrington, he broke that record. I like his comment on it. He said, I was in the sheds later when a couple of media blokes came up and told me about it. But I don't know. I'm not even sure it counts. So a bit, bit of a subtle sledge there at the World Club Challenge.
1: <laughs> subtle.
0: <laughs> uh, but in a year of great personal success for Gerdler, there was one major award that he missed out on uh, and actually lost to one of his Panthers teammates, and that was uh, Rugby League's Sexiest Man Award. So it was a, a stacked field at Miranda Fair. Uh, the lineup, including uh, Matt Adamson and Ryan Girdler at Penrith, Solomon Hamono, Michael Gillette, Ken McGuinness, Nathan Brown, Luke Rickardson, and Jack Elsgood.
1: I mean, a few bona fide studs in that group, but a couple of um, making up the numbers there, I reckon, as well. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> definitely some there
0: that are, are, you know, happy to be there. But uh, so Matt Adamson, the winner, which knocking out Jack Elsgood and Luke Ricketson, that is Impressive.
1: Well, I don't think Rico was the known stud then until like late career and retirement. That's when he really No, took no, off.
0: no. No, I can uh provide evidence to the contrary because yes? I think it might have been in like ninety-two, ninety three when he was like, you know, just entering the league. That is simply the best commercial. He was ah, featured. Right. Saying, um, I just want to meet Tina Turner. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and my mum, who couldn't name a single rugby league player otherwise uh she really took a shine to that wow. moment and luke Rickettson from that moment on so uh, my mum's favorite rugby league player luke Ricketson.
1: Now, no wonder you hate east <laughs> definitely a handsome gentleman but um nathan brown see I, I never got the nathan brown thing even with the barnet you know like uh to me he was just like a louis Piccoli looking little surf grommet but um i actually know a girl an acquaintance that um had a Ronnie with him back in the day in uh, Foster <laughs> and that was her claim to fame but um only a did little... she
0: give, give an evaluation
1: no no she's a gentlewoman, but um <laughs> she's not too gentle to brag about it but the um they only had a little Ronnie because then we just met they couldn't have a big one which is a, <laughs> a great Ronnie Rude quote <laughs>
0: And kind of ties into Brown's later quote about Wayne Bennett thinking with his little head, not his big head.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I think Brownie was lucky to be there.
0: I'm going to defend Brownie here. I think the word I would use to describe him in this era was spunk rat. I think maybe... <laughs> Maybe he's more of, like, a a late 80s kind of peak, that style, but, like, I can see that the girl's getting behind him.
1: Him and Sterlow, I never got it. Like, to me, they look like um, heartthrobs in Memphis Wrestling in the 70s, like just ugly blokes (laughs) that are somehow heartthrobs.
0: Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, but Matt Adamson, a deserved winner. He'd actually done some modelling in the past, so, you know, he wasn't green.
1: He should have been excluded. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, he did his cause uh, no favours when, in the interview portion, he declared that he liked skinny women, <laughs> but then tried to win them back by saying that actually like Princess Di was the woman of his dreams, God uh, and then went on to proclaim his love for his mother. So this was the sensitive New Age guy era. <laughs> I think that might have assisted in getting him over the line. Yeah. <laughs> But again, you know, moving on from sexiest man, it was a great year on field for Adamson too. Uh, So he made his New South Wales and Australian debuts and was actually one of the few players to play in all five Australian Super League tests. Wow. So there were five ever Super League tests played uh, involving Australia. And so the players who played in all five were Laurie Daly, Craig Gower, Ken Nagus, Wendell Saylor, Darren Smith, Brad Thorne and Matt Adamson.
1: He was one of the guys that wasn't a lucky selection in half a comp. You deserve to be there.
0: Yeah. I think in a United comp, he would have been making his New South Wales start there too. And, you know, probably playing for Australia as well. So, really good player. Maybe similar to Pula Tour, where like he never got to the heights that you maybe thought he was going to get yeah. at certain points. But
1: I think he had a lesser career than Pula Tour. But yeah. Um, yeah. I was a big Phil Adamson fan. I love an offload, right, from the Mm. Cartwright days. And he was more like a halfback in a forwards body, (laughs) Phil Adamson. But his brother ran really hard as well. And um, I just really loved watching them.
0: Yeah, and a leading player manager now. Is he? Yeah. But overall, it was just a middling season for the Panthers. They had a bad injury run, lost a bit of momentum over the course of the season, finished fifth in Super League almost by default. You know, they kind of fell over the line, managed to, you know, win a semi-final, but I don't think they would have done much in a United comp, you know, maybe like on the edge of the finals or finishing, you know, 10th or 11th. So just a, a middling year for the Panthers overall. The same is true for their semi-final opponents, the Bulldogs. So they were in a state of flux. So Terry Lamb was gone for good this time. He was embracing his off-field role uh, with a marketing job, uh, going, like, really hard <laughs> at it, including insisting on overseeing the cheerleading auditions. <laughs> so a true clubman.
1: Can you imagine being, like, an 18-year-old girl dancer dancing in front of bar <laughs> with that, <laughs> that body shape and, like... It would have just been hilarious.
0: But so with Terry Lamb gone, how are they going to replace him was the big issue. There was a, a humorous story in the Super League magazine which involved Chris Anderson being a, approached by a drunk Dogs fan, you know, telling him what the Dogs need to do to turn their season around and said, two quick passes from Dummy Half and you're around the defence. All you need is someone like Terry Lamb at Dummy Half, which Anderson <laughs> responded, well, have you seen one of those running around? <laughs>
1: One of the great rugby league tropes is the uh, arsehole in the pub explaining what to do. I, I love it. <laughs> I've been the guy and um, I want to do it again. But that's a serious point. I mean, you're losing probably two tries a game just from him backing up. Like, with yeah,
0: you. <laughs> yeah. And so they were unsettled in the halves all season. So Craig Polamana played about half the season at halfback, half the season at 5.8. Travis Norton and Glenn Hughes both spent time at 5.8. Duncan McRae was there. Barry Berrigan playing some games at half. So by the end of the year, it was clear that they didn't have enough in the halves, determined they needed to make a change, trying to you know develop players or buy players, ended up spending the next couple of years with various Hughes brothers filling the role. The Dogs had better luck in the backs. This was the year that Hazem El-Mazri emerged, a, a breakout year for him as well. It's really crazy, the hype about El-Mazri In this year as a player. So the goal kicking success was still years off. The way El Masri is talked about throughout this year, it's really remarkable when, you know, I think of Hazm as a goal kicker first and as a winger, I think, you know, solid and dependable, but not like an excitement machine or anything. But he was being talked about as, you know, a phenomenon. He was being talked about as emerging as a genuine star. One story I liked, I read it in multiple publications over the year. So He really made his mark uh, at a schoolboy game in 1994, uh, playing for Belmore Boys High. A player's put up a bomb. Hazem has run through, jumped into the air, turned around, did a flying scissor kick to kick the ball into the goal area. Regathers, gets on his feet, runs through and puts the ball down for a try. Amazing. So uh, Billy Johnston, who was the dog's trainer, who was there, said it was the best try he's ever seen at any level. Uh, Gary Hughes said, you know, no one will ever believe it, but we saw it, it happened. So I guess maybe within the dogs, that hype had been there pretty much from that moment on.
1: I mean, would you recommend bringing the scissor kick into the first grade? Or?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it has the potential to go very wrong, but, uh, you know, a spectacular play anyway. But so all year he was battling with, Matt Ryan to take out the Super League's top tri-scorer award. He was considered a genuine chance of making the Australian squad. So it was just a really exciting time for the dogs with him there. And I mentioned Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan actually won that battle in the end and took out Super League's top tri-scorer.
1: We spoke about him before, but I think he's got to be one of the true success stories of Super League, right? Mm. Came of age, um, got recognition. It was
0: another one of those players where he was... Such a classy player. Anytime we've watched him in the season recaps we've done from 94 onwards, he's looked so good. Like he was a really good player who could never stay on the field. Yeah. And this was basically the one year of his career where he did. So he had a full season. His quote on it at the time was, it's a bit of a learning process for me. I'm not used to playing a full season. So the highs <laughs> and lows of coming up in week in, week out is something I haven't had to cope with before. So he put it together, made three tri-series appearances for New South Wales. It was kind of like, you know, the proof in the pudding for a player who would promise so much. But sadly, it it never got as good again, like more injuries and, you know, his career just ended up fizzling out. But like really, really good player.
1: Yeah, but it warms the heart to me that some guys don't get any chance to get a full run for a year and just get injured out of the game. He got that moment in the sun like that. And plus he had the the Canterbury... Grand finals and whatever, but um, yep. oh, yeah, I'm really happy for him for this year.
0: And just that backline in general like you put, you know, add in Halligan, John Timu, and, and Rod Silver. It's just Tons. like this, yeah, really like solid players who weren't spectacular, but they were steady, they were consistent, and as a unit, it was just like a really strong backline.
1: I always rooted for Halligan as a player, not as a kicker. Yeah, so he's so underrated and so unfashionable. Yeah, he always delivered. He'd crash over. He'd, he'd finish properly. He'd, he wouldn't drop the ball. You know, yeah, Good winger.
0: Yeah, well, uh, Chris Anderson's assessment was: he's the sort of player who really helps a coach. He's organised, professional, durable, a club man. He works hard on his fitness and goal kicking, and is the sort of bloke that gets in and sets up social functions for the team. Legend. So uh, he's just universally known as a good bloke and a positive influence in the dressing room as well as being an asset off the field so Lynn Anderson said we've had players who have been good with sponsors but Daryl took it one level higher he did our deal with RM Williams we wanted classy team (laughs) outfits he approached them and got them on board he's a real (laughs) asset
1: (laughs) what a legend yeah I know so uh, Lynn I'm looking at some moleskins for uh, (laughs) (laughs) round 12
0: Friend of the show, Craig Norenberg, actually worked with Daryl Halligan at the ABC and said he was just like an awesome bloke. And he had his kicking tea business that, you know, was really successful. So he had some entrepreneurial uh, abilities as well.
1: (laughs) Is Halligan the um, non obnoxious ridge of the team? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you really couldn't get further apart, could you? Uh, Beyond the backs, there was some good emerging talent in the forwards with. Solomon Hamono switching to the dogs, getting the reputation as being the game's biggest hitter, had a huge tackle on Michael Hancock late in the season that was the biggest hit in either comp, played for New South Wales and Australia, but, you know, his form dwindled towards the end of the year. Pleasure Machine happened in 1998, and there's an emerging trend for players we've talked about this season. is another one that it never got as good for him again as it was in 1997.
1: Shout out to Gabrielle Richtens. Yeah. She was the MVP of the comp that year, but um <laughs> he was scary when he yeah burst onto the scene as a hitter. A torpedo. Yeah. Like imagine playing against that in that era.
0: Oh yeah. And when we talk about the the you know early kind of Polynesian influence, one of the few things I remember from the Super League season was billboards that were blasted all over the place advertising the dogs and super league. And it was like, from memory, he was like in a cage or something. And, you know, this menacing face. Yeah, right. uh, but I think he was kind of becoming like, you know, someone really marketable as well. You know, finalist in The Sexiest Man too. So it's just a shame we never got the career we could have got from him.
1: Well, that story you brought out a few years back about the descent into drugs, hell. I mean, that was harrowing mm-hmm. and the um, impact on his family and whatever. But he's another example of when they all say, oh, just let them have a good time and party with their mates, you know, their mates are doing it, why don't they do it? For every Freddie and Joey or whatever that and you know, Mark Guy that have turned out to be good blokes, there's a dozen guys that have, like, their lives have been destroyed by it. Yeah,
0: so yeah.
1: It's, it's yeah. horrible.
0: And the thing about it is it's often the guys who are hanging out with Freddie and Joey and seeing them being out all night and then winning man and match the next day So they kind of think, you know, oh, well, well, he's doing it like that, but, you know, not many players can actually do that. And and I feel you get so many derailed careers from that sort of thing happening within a dressing room.
1: Yeah. I mean, so when they're really harsh on the testing and whatever, I'm like, good, save some lives.
0: Yeah. Uh, One player who was a fantastic dressing room influence was Steve Price and I feel in every episode we do, there's one word I overuse. And when I listen back, I cringe about how many times <laughs> I use that word. Uh, like. Definitely in this episode, it is breakout because uh, it was a breakout year for Steve Price. So uh, one of many players to stamp his authority and become solidified as a first grader and then paving the way for you know heights beyond that in seasons to come.
1: If you asked me in that era about one player who's going to be a Jap, just a player um, in first grade, compared to what he ended up, he would be the one.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Amazing career.
0: And probably like another one who it took everyone a few years to catch up to what a good player he was. But it almost didn't happen. He all but signed with the Cowboys after struggling to nail down a place in the team. So he was not really getting along with Chris Anderson, found himself you know, in reserve grade on the bench, playing out of position and just not really knowing whether he had a future within the Dogs. He actually requested a release from the Bulldogs and was going to sign with the Cowboys before the Bulldogs eventually changed their mind and didn't release him.
1: What could have been for the Cowboys?
0: Yeah, that would have been a perfect signing for them. But it was interesting, in his book he talks about confronting Anderson after the 1996 season and saying, I don't know what I've got to do. You know, it seems nothing I do is ever good enough. Uh, And Anderson's response, I, I really found this interesting. He said, do you know that in all my time here, there have only been two other players that have had me at a loss as to how to get the best out of them. Those two are Darren and Jason Smith. And I don't know whether to leave them alone, talk to them, yell at them or whatever. You're the same. I've given up. I've tried everything. I've yelled at you. I've abused you and none of it's worked. I've yelled at you, I've abused you, and that hasn't (laughs) worked well.
1: (laughs) Is there any other options besides? Yeah.
0: (laughs) But then Price went on to say, you know, why aren't I getting a start? And Anderson said, until you believe you're a first grader, you're not going to get a start in first grade. And Steve Price went away and thought about it and thought, he's actually right. I'm going into games in awe of the players I'm playing with and against, and I need to you know, just focus on the game and believe in my abilities as a first grade player.
1: So he was right, Chris Anderson.
0: Yeah. Price was actually a second rower at that point and he got put into the front row by Anderson, which subsequently made his career.
1: Well, he was one of the first of the mobile front rowers, right? Yeah. It went from big bopper era to um athletic era.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite stories of the dog season uh concerns Steve Price. So when we do our ARL recap, we're going to cover a fiasco in the Commonwealth Bank Cup where <laughs> a, a fight in one of the televised games threatened to ruin the competition and have Commonwealth Bank pull out of the sponsorship. When that happened, Steve Price, who played in the final when he was at uh, Harris Down High in Toowoomba, he was really upset and concerned about the competition falling apart So he rang Peter Sterling to say, is there anything I can do? Which is a nice thing to do. But Sterlo uh, made the mistake of mentioning that on the Sunday footy show saying, you know, this young bloke, Steve Price, he called me up and said, is there anything I can do? Uh, To which the rest of the dogs uh, using that as an excuse for uh, the G up culture to (laughs) take over and basically for the rest of the year they'd always go up to Price and say, you know, is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can do?
1: (laughs) There's quite a few similarities between the g culture and the Moron culture.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It says so much about that mentality that, you know, Price, a genuinely good guy, worried about the future of the game and the junior competitions, uh, you know, does this effort and the rest of the players are like mocking him for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's rugby league to it
0: But he took it in good spirit and due to that, you know, innate kind of niceness or good bloke-itis, uh, he was probably always going to cop it. So he talks about an earlier incident when he was playing President's Cup and he was playing his first game as captain of the team, Against South. And at the end of the game, he turned to the other guys and said, Three cheers for South. And everyone on his team and on South like, were looking at him like, You know, what is this idiot doing? <laughs> like,
1: sportsmanship and, um, yeah, being a nice guy doesn't get you <laughs> kudos. <immediately. Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so again, it was a middling season for the Dogs overall. Notable maybe for uh, Chris Anderson's influence at restoring that balance to the speed of the game and the play the ball interpretation he was one of the coaches that was vocal about super league going too far in trying to speed up the ruck. this was his quote on it we believe the rest were too keen to quicken it up and therefore they were penalizing good defensive sides if you can dominate the ruck area in defense then you should have the right to slow the game down as much as you want within the rules so i think in being vocal about it he definitely played a part the interesting thing in that quote is that the dogs were very much not a good defensive side. So they had the third worst defensive record in Super League, and in the ARL they were in front of only the Rabbitohs and Crushers in terms of points conceded per game. Yeah,
1: right. so
0: they were a bad defensive team. Were one half of the forty-eight to thirty-six, fifteen try debacle against the Mariners, which got a lot of headlines for you know being the Super League experience in a nutshell some cheap points for ARL supporters to talk about it being touch football
1: and they were right
0: yeah yeah so the daily telegraphs headline about that game was actually touch football and the word fast is used several times in the <laughs> article too
1: let me ask you this if you're from the Australian touch football federation reading that what are you thinking <laughs> yeah <I know. laughs> it's an absolute joke yeah <laughs> Especially now that touch
0: football is aligned with the NRL. I wonder if they're like extra sensitive to it now (laughs) within the NRL about journalists not talking about league being like touch football. (laughs) But the Bulldogs were the ones who got 48. So Hunter Mariners lost after scoring 36 points. 36 seems to be the magic number in terms of losing rugby league scores. And at this point, I'm going To do my semi regular shout out to the Rugby League Project, which, as I've said many times, we could not do our show without. So jump onto their Patreon and think about supporting because it's like truly an amazing resource that we can't take for granted, but well worth it. Shout out to the Rugby League Project. But so, in addition to that game, in 2005, the Bulldogs lost 37 to 36 to the Tigers. In two thousand and ten, the Titans beat the Knights thirty eight to thirty six, and the Titans also beat the Storm at thirty-eight to thirty-six in two thousand and seventeen. And no one has ever scored more points and lost a game in the you know hundred and whatever years of the New South Wales rugby league slash NRL.
1: It's a lot of points.
0: Yeah, it's a huge amount of points. But that is probably the one, you know, notable thing about the dogs on field season, similar to the Panthers was semi-finalists almost by default, looking at the quality of the bottom five. Uh, a couple of things happening off-field are probably more notable in terms of the dog season. Firstly was the so-called Battle of Belmore, which was a really disturbing incident that broke out in a game at June in a, at Belmore at a Dogs-Panthers match, where a fight broke out on the Terry Lamb family hill, fights between fans and police. There were estimates of like, you know, 500 or so people involved. Police actually drawing guns, which, you know, you never want to see in a a rugby league game.
1: Yeah, that was nasty. That was. But I always come back to this. They want to blame the club all the time. What are the club doing? It's like, you can't help if like a bunch of antisocial psychos buy tickets to your game. It could happen to anybody.
0: Yeah. And looking at the dog's actions before and after, you can see some missteps they made. But some really good things too. So I just want to talk through what happened and what ultimately became of it. So firstly, it wasn't a one-off incident. There'd been warnings of potential for trouble with a certain element of the Dogs crowd. So Matt Ryan had actually been confronted by a group in the Belmore car park in 1996. And uh, his quote was, they'd been there for a schoolboy match and were a bad element. I had some trouble with them. These kids have no respect. It's more than a sporting problem. Earlier in 1997, dogs officials were using Hazem el-Masri to you know, walk through the crowd and try to talk to some of the bad element, having had a couple of bad incidents.
1: Are you tiptoeing around the fact that it's a cultural uh, issue there?
0: <laughs> no, Yeah, I, I mean, okay, so it was a small minority of the Lebanese bulldog supporters that were causing the issue. The dogs were actively... Involved in trying to fix it. So, you know, Ray Dibb was there with a group of um, supporters trying to, you know, quell some of the issues among some of the younger fans who were causing the trouble.
1: But my point is with Canterbury, right? Like in Newcastle, there's been times when there's been groups of drunken country boys causing trouble. You know, it's like, what do you do? Go to the crowd and go, you don't look very um, friendly. Uh, you're banned. You can't do that. So, no. I don't know yeah. what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So when it
0: happened, you know, it was one of the games that was marketed as a multicultural occasion. So flyers and ads were produced in over a dozen languages and, you know, it was one of their regular multicultural celebrations. When it all goes bad, the first thing, you know, people in the press are doing it, are talking about, this multiculturalism was a concern. It could lead to a, you know, NSL-style race-based...
1: Like, we don't you know, want flares. We don't want that.
0: No, Yeah. Exactly. So there were predictable calls that it had gone too far and they had to dial it back because it was causing problems.
1: But like the multicultural thing was they were pioneers in that and and brought a lot of new people to the game. It's a really great thing. So I don't know how they're planning that. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. And to their credit, Canterbury never thought of wavering in their belief in the concept. So their next home game actually happened to be a World Club Challenge match against Wigan, and they expressly said, we're not banning Lebanese flags, we're not banning English flags, we're a multicultural fan base, and we celebrate that. And I think that was something really good they did in acknowledging problems within the fan base, but not using that to tar the whole fan base or trying to walk away from the strategy that they developed over a number of years. Uh, and. They ended up they had a bit of problems in that game and we obviously saw problems over the next few years but I like the way the dogs kind of overcame that without sacrificing the spirit that they built within the community. So that was a bad look for the dogs at that time. I wouldn't won't say it's a bad look but a typical look for the dogs was drama within the family. So uh Chris Anderson making his way out of Canterbury and stepping on some toes in the process. So basically the drama came to a head when Chris Anderson walked into an under-19 selection meeting and demanded that his son Ben Anderson be selected to play halfback over Corey Hughes.
1: How many sons of club legends have caused feuds?
0: And the Hughes family had genuine claims to be upset, not only the fact that Chris Anderson has nothing to do with under19 selections otherwise so what's he doing there in the first place but secondly Corey Hughes was the captain of the New South Wales under19s at halfback so he'd proven himself at that level as you know having the the runs on the board and the coach has come in and said he needs to be moved on but it's interesting in terms of where Corey Hughes ultimately spent his playing career you know which was almost exclusively at Hooker in first grade. So, you know, Chris Anderson knew something about his ultimate abilities. Yeah. But regardless, Gary Hughes, the patriarch, wasn't happy. And basically, after that, Chris Anderson and Gary Hughes didn't speak to each other for months. It wasn't just the Ben Anderson matter. Gary thought that Glenn and Stephen weren't being given a proper go in first grade either. <laughs> Already you can just see like how easy it is for everything to fall apart when you've got so many family members involved
1: in a club. Absolutely. Mainly in Canterbury, just amazing. Yeah.
0: Uh, and so ultimately it all fell apart after the dogs were knocked out by the Panthers in the semifinal. So they were having their, you know, post-match drinks where Glenn Hughes uh, came up to Chris Anderson and said why don't you get out of the club? Everybody hates you here. <laughs> so things deteriorated, almost devolved into a physical fight. Uh, Chris Anderson played down how serious it was. He said, as I see it, it's just one of those things that happen at any football club. Sometimes after a few drinks, things can get out of hand and emotion gets the better of people. It happens.
1: But you see, like, the difference where you excuse your own physical altercation and then condemn the uh, crowd altercations, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, it's like <laughs> they're both obnoxious.
0: <laughs> I mean, in the Anderson defence, I don't think police had to pull guns <laughs> on on, <laughs> on Glenn Hughes.
1: I reckon there would have been something like, get out of the club now I like shit. It's like, oh, get fucked, mate, you're a rat yeah. bag. Get out of here, <laughs> you're a rat bag. <laughs>
0: So Stephen Hughes, for his part, also played it down, said, you know, firstly, I've never had any problems with Chris Anderson. Uh, I don't have any beef with him. But then he does have a, you know, not so subtle dig at the way things fell out. He said, all I know is Corey was moved out of his position as Canterbury's halfback at Chris's insistence, even though he had nothing to do with the team. Corey captained the New South Wales under-19 side but he was moved to Hooker. So, you know, making sure it was known that the Hughes family had some genuine claims of grievance.
1: We've been to harsh on Anderson throughout this series at times, but he's right on Steve Price, it turns out, and he was right on Corey Hughes. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, And so this was all happening as the Bullfrog situation was devolving. Uh, we don't need to go into the board rivalry concerning Bullfrog again although we really did scratch the surface. I could spend 10 more episodes on discussing Bullfrog's years at the Dogs, but we won't (laughs) do that now. Um, But basically, this was all happening at the same time. So Chris Anderson wasn't happy with elements within the club. Bullfrog was on the outer. Anderson being very close to Bullfrog, it meant that the signs were there that Canterbury's future was not going to involve Chris Anderson. His quote on the situation when it was clear he was leaving was, I think when Bullfrog went, I clung on to all those Canterbury values, but the club was moving in a different direction. I was not upset with Canterbury at all. I'd had a couple of little blues with a couple of blokes. I wanted to stay in the direction we had been. There are times in history when people need to go their different ways. Peter had gone and they just wanted to go in a different direction. I was a bit of a dinosaur. So on top of Chris Anderson falling out, Lynn Anderson was also caught up in the crossfire with one of those board factions, not happy with her performance as marketing manager.
1: <laughs> I won't have the good name of Lynn Anderson smeared <laughs> in a boardroom brawl, but um, she was behind the multicultural thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. So, so. Exactly. Give her props for that. Yeah. In saying that, is there a chance that there might be a better marketing qualified person in Australia that wasn't Bullfrogs daughter? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, So, as it turns out, the writing was on the wall. Chris Anderson decides that he was leaving and headed to Melbourne. Uh, He said of the matter, there's a little bit of Burke and Wills in me, a bit of pioneering stuff. But what excited me most about Melbourne was the fact it was starting from scratch and we could sort of build a team to exactly how we wanted it.
1: Well, there was a bit of Burke and Wills in his coaching career because it died in the wilderness.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I just love all the talk from Anderson. You know, the dogs are going in a different direction and that direction happened to be a different bullfrog son-in-law. <laughs> so Steve Fox comes in as coach and, you know, went on to have some great success. Not only missing out on the coaching job was Steve Mortimer, who the... Anti-Mor faction, which was Gary McIntyre and the Hughes' were boosting Mortimer. They wanted him to get in over Bullfrog's son-in-law, perhaps for obvious reasons. But Steve Folks got the job and Turvey had to fall back on his shuffleboard empire. And (laughs) this is another quote that that really has no place in our story, but is too good to leave out. So when he was talking about uh, shuffleboard, Mortimer said that he was, you know, recently in Melbourne for an inter-village shuffleboard competition with a winning team of a man and three women. And uh, Steve Mortimer's quote was, the bloke said he was so happy that he felt like Michael Flatley, the Irish dancer who wants to make love after a performance. He told me he wanted to bonk all three of his teammates. (laughs) What
1: the hell? It's just thinking with that shovel board, it's like they run the club, mainly as well, they run the Canterbury like a Sicilian mafia family. Yeah, or yeah. married and whatever. And then yep. the eye ties love the bocce and then they <laughs> the <turbies> on the <laughs> shovel board, you know? Like.
0: So the Anderson era falls out in typical Canterbury style. And I, I want to close the Anderson section with a quote from Dean Ritchie who said, a bizarre few weeks has ensured the demise of Canterbury's image as the happy family club. No longer will Canterbury be seen as the epitome of a trouble free organisation. Dean Ritchie is a professional journalist who, with a straight face, yeah. called Canterbury the epitome of a trouble free organisation.
1: I mean, think about that.
0: And the last thing I'll say of Canterbury before we move on is a glimpse of trouble ahead. Uh, a quote from the Rugby League Week in. July 1997. The Telegraph reports that Canterbury Bankstown Leagues Club are set to lodge an application to build a $150 million sports centre in Liverpool. So the Oasis project is a story for another day, but we will move on to the Canberra Raiders. So as I said at the start, the Raiders were coming into 1997 with a new coach, that being Mal Meninga. So one of those weird situations where he was coaching... So many of his old teammates hadn't coached. Never works. works. I mean, he made a good fist of it and didn't have any, you know, top level coaching experience, or you know, he hadn't coached the lower grades. It was kind of like appointed on on reputation alone. And I think overall, considering he was coaching so many of his former teammates, considering the Raiders were kind of entering a new era, you have to say he actually did a fairly decent job as their coach
1: agreed yeah some guys are so respected as a player they can do it they can generate that respect but um i just it can't work long term Yeah. yeah coaching your mates
0: yeah and i think maybe because he was that bit older than the other players in the team in that you know 94 era canberra team maybe it made his job a bit easier to Step in as coach.
1: He was an elder statesman for sure. Yeah. And 34. So it's a good point.
0: But I think it's definitely a mark of the esteem in which he's held in the game that he was able to just jump in and there were no raised eyebrows or, you know, concerns about putting players out or or anything like that. It it was just accepted that he was the coach and he had the respect.
1: You'd have to be pretty strong to raise Mel's eyebrows. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) 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 So it was a changing of the guard in Canberra. So in addition to Tim Sheens heading up to Townsville, 1997 was kind of the beginning of an exodus that would really ramp up over the next couple of years with players moving on. Of the 1997 losses, so it was Steve Walters, John Lomax, Mark Corvo, and Steve Stone. So you could say like only Walters and, you know, Lomax to a lesser extent was like a, you know, massive loss. And History shows that it was the right time for Walters to move on as well. So
1: I think Lomax as well. I'm not going to call him dead wood, but you want to get people before they decline, right? Get them out of there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that set the pattern for the next few years in Canberra. Uh, One player who'd leave at the end of 1997 was Quentin Pongia. And I just really like this quote. I just thought it was really sweet. He was talking about John Lomax and he said, mate, I didn't know we'd become such good friends until he left. Whenever I see the big bugger around, it just reminds me how good we went together.
1: Quentin's beloved, if you're a camera yeah. fan, he's just underrated around the comp, I think, still. But Yeah, yeah, um... absolutely.
0: And the two of them together, not that they managed to be on the park at the <laughs> same time too often.
1: <laughs> they were good.
0: <laughs> uh, but so it was really at hooker that you really saw the emergence of some players with Walters departing. And, It's a pretty crazy production line of hookers in Canberra in the nineties. So Steve Walters were there. You had Jason Deeth, Steve Stone, who you know both made way when they couldn't get Walters out. Then Simon Wolford emerges, and he's considered in the box seat to be the new long term Canberra hooker. Was even talked about being a rep hooker in nineteen ninety seven. But then suddenly in comes Luke Pritis as well. Incredible. Pritis goes on to make his New South Wales debut in 97 when Craig Gow was ruled out for one of the tri-series games.
1: It's really bad luck when your development's going that well and in a position where you can only have one or two maximum. (laughs) It's really terrible. (laughs) Why can't they be second rowers?
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. Well, one second rower they had was Ben Kennedy, who really arrived on the scene in 1997 and with Clyde and Ferner made up like a pretty... Phenomenal back row,
1: one of the all-time great rugby league players, and of the union convert. So
0: yeah, yeah, I love Ben Kennedy so much. Talking union, union, there was big rumours in nineteen ninety seven about him going back to rugby union. So he was off contract at the end of ninety seven and was viewed as being a certainty to be going to the Waratahs.
1: Imagine that the career he had after that if he went yeah. to the union. And-,
0: and I put him with like Rex Mossop and Ray Price as guys that you just. It doesn't make sense that they were RARAs. No. But unfortunately, he broke his arm late in the season, which probably went some way to, you know, stopping the Raiders when they would gained some momentum because it was a really super back row and he was a key part of it. But, you know, a real breakout year, there's that word again, for Ben Kennedy. Alternating between back row and front row was Brett Hetherington, who by 1997 had taken on a more senior role and was, you know, a young veteran. Underrated, yeah. So he got the only rep jersey of his career that year, playing for Australia in the nines. It's surprising that he never got, you know, a country jersey or whatever, because he was a really
1: good player. He defined the description: raw bone forward. Mm. And
0: off the field, was married to Brett Mullins' sister.
1: There's a brother-in-law you want to um, (laughs) to keep an arm's length there.
0: (laughs) And speaking of Mullins, but we will keep this brief because any time we talk about Brett Mullins tends to go on, and I think we've said all we have to say on the matter, but interesting, like, he didn't play a single game at fullback in 1997.
1: I found that so weird. It must have been his attitude or something at training or whatever because to go from where he was at fullback to back to the centres, it didn't make sense
0: to me. Yeah. And I mean, Ken Nagus was a great player, but I don't know. It's just so weird to me that Brett Mullins had fallen that far in the pecking order.
1: Nothing against Ken Nagus at fullback. That's a dream as well. But to have Kenny on the wing and uh, mm. and Mullos at the back, that's what you want in both in peak form.
0: Yeah. So played center for the Raiders, played on the wing for New South Wales, which was the only rep games he had that year, and was widely believed to be shopped around for 1998. Of course, he was retained in the end, but it was a sign of how far his star had fallen that, you know, that was even on the table.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Laurie Daly, on the other hand, was just as good as he ever was. Won Super League's Player of the Year award. He's just such a great player. Like I think that is one of my key takeaways from this series, is that he's very rated as a player, but he's still underrated. Like, I think he is... A genuine great. I'd have him ahead of Brad Fittler in my Immortals pecking order. And I think it is this Super League period that makes people forget. Like, you tend to think of him just as, you know, kind of 89 to 94. But, like, here he is in 1997, still an elite, elite player.
1: One of those guys that, if he's in the lineup, they're 12 points, 16 points better. They're, they're a yeah. chance of winning. If he's not in the lineup, just forget about it. You know. Like, yeah. Um, but I actually think, with all the injuries he had, if he was injured during the Super League season, Super League would have been for the dogs. I reckon yeah. he saved them just being like a gun. Yeah,
0: totally. I mean, because that's something that, and I think you get this every year, but, you know, Glenn Lazarus was out for the season late in the year. You know, Alan Langer spent time injured. Brandy was out. Ricky Stewart was out. So they were down a fair bit of star power across the board, not just having the split comps. So you needed a champion there and there the whole way. And Laurie Daly was that champion.
1: And you just know he was playing like 75% probably. So
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And still dominating.
0: Yeah. His longtime partner at Canberra, Bradley Clyde, was probably moving into a different position of his career. But that is maybe not... Just to do with him getting older, but also the role he had to take on with some of the players moving on a bit less, you know, firepower in the forwards. He needed to take on more grunt work and was, you know, kind of like had a miss to fix it role.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, but I seem to remember two distinct body shapes: like a mobile Iron Man Bradley Clyde, and then sort of rather stout prop middle forward Bradley Clyde.
0: Yeah, I mean, by the time he got to the Dogs, he was almost a completely different player. Yeah. but So I'm bringing all these up because I think it's important to put this Canberra team in context where the stars of that early run had either moved on or were coming into a different part of their career. And that's true of Bradley Clyde. And it's really true of Ricky Stewart, who had another injury interrupted, interrupted year after a similar one in 1996. And when he was on the park, was struggling to get back to his best.
1: His running game deserted him after the injuries, really. Yeah. So he just just become a, nearly a pure distributor. So it was like yep. he was a target. Then if you haven't got your other option to break the line, they're just going to envelop you.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think Stewart is definitely one you can say is a 89 to 94 type career. Like he never played another rep game after 1994, which he would have played for New South Wales and possibly Australia in Super League, if not for injury. So it's just one of those funny quirks where someone who was such a great player, regarded as one of the great halfbacks of all time, and effectively had a five-year rep career, and that was it.
1: Well, if you just happen to be listening to this episode randomly and not the other uh, 80 hours of content, um, my favorite player of all time, love the guy <laughs> on the field. Um, but... He changed the game with passing and kicking, but by this time, the rest of the league had caught up to that. Joey, yeah. those sort of guys, and they were better kickers than him, and they were as good a passers as him. Mm. So he didn't have that same sort of cachet by this point either.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of you like him on the field, what do you make of this quote? So he was looking to improve his form and make some changes and sought counsel from Warren Ryan. Uh, And his reasoning was, (laughs) I regard Warren Ryan as a good bloke.
1: (laughs) That, to me, says it all. um, (laughs) I agree with Stick on that assessment, too.
0: Yeah. And certainly the second part of that quote was also a man who knows a lot about the game. And you won't find many disagreements there. But I just thought that was so funny (laughs) thinking of Ricky Stewart.
1: He was dubbed the game's best thinker in his um, Telegraph byline, which used to crack me up. The arrogance of that byline, but yeah, <laughs> he was a really great thinker, and all the great thinkers in rugby league all gravitated towards wok, Mm. Gus, yeah, Joey, Sticky. You know, so yeah, yeah, everyone's around this guy.
0: Yeah, totally. But so, all in all, it was a mixed year for Canberra. It started really badly with four losses in a row to open the season. Uh, Laurie Daly's assessment stands out. He said, "We stay at the nice hotels. We fly everywhere. We get everything spoon-fed to us." And we go out and play like a bunch of Sheilas.
1: <laughs> Shout out to the uh, women's NRL. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I think it kind of all points to they were a, a great team on the slide. I think that is pretty clear as to how you know their form progressed during the nineties. Also, you can understand as a kind of veteran team slow to catch up with the Super League style of play. So Stuart admits that he said we didn't adapt. To the Super League way of playing football as quickly as some other teams did. We were still wrestling in tackles when we had the ball, trying to gain an extra metre or two to get an arm free to pass.
1: As much as we mock uh, Rugby League players for never adapting to rule changes, they actually pulled the rug out of the game on them. Yeah. <laughs> it's an entirely new game to play. So I feel for them on that account.
0: Yeah. And to their credit, they did catch up. So after that four game losing streak, ended up going on a long winning run and late in the season were viewed as favourites to be in the grand final, if not win it. So it was a good year and it's, to me it's the ultimate what if. So Cronulla obviously earned their spot in that grand final, but it just would have been so perfect having Canva versus Brisbane finally playing in a grand final and having that being the Super League grand final.
1: Yeah, but in, in the same sense it would have been... Brisbane had an unbeatable team and Canberra had like a declining team, like you already said. So I think the boat was missed on the super matchup. Yeah, yeah. 93 would have been that year. Yeah. So basically
0: they were a clear third best team in the comp, but, you know, there was some distance between them and Brisbane and Cronulla. So a couple of off-field things are probably the most interesting things that I want to take away from the Raiders season. The firstly was the drama involving Noah Nandruku. You can't think of a more obvious fan favourite than Noah Nandruku, the way he burst onto the scene and the place he held within that Raiders team.
1: Electric vibes when he came out. It was incredible.
0: Yeah. And just an irresistible story. So Tim Sheen's quote was, here's a man plucked out of a tiny village in Fiji five years ago who's developed into one of the most exciting talents modern rugby league has seen. And certainly within Canberra, just this year, he was elevated to the Canberra Raiders Hall of Fame um, and honoured there. But the story of Noah in 1997 is not a good one. And it all starts with a nightclub incident in February where he was charged with assault after decking his wife and king hitting two young women who were complete strangers
1: in his defense, right? I'm going to come out. He was blind.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, that it's interesting to you say those words in his defense, because that is a big part of the story, but uh, the court recorded it as an act of drunken thuggery, which, you know, says it all. And the sad part is it wasn't a first defense. So I didn't know this at the time, but he'd actually been charged with assault and fined $500 three years earlier after breaking a woman's nose and giving her stitches in her mouth. Fucking so, hell. Yeah. So he had form
1: and it, it's horrible. And, it, <laughs> and it's basically swept under the carpet.
0: Yeah, it? like it totally swept under the carpet. And the really strange thing for me is the fact that this incident happens in February. It's reported at the time, but then it basically disappears in the press until the court case at the end of the year. So it's just such a different era when a story like this could be reported and then just drop out of the news for nine months until, you know, there's an update to the story.
1: Yeah, there was a culture back then with journalists you could do that. You could kill a story. Yeah. Um, Social media days, you can never do that now. No,
0: yeah. And so you can understand, like, with such a different media climate like i think the no-fault stand-down policy like it's really complicated and fraught in terms of execution but you understand the need for something like that to be put in place because you just can't have a player running around playing all year facing charges for like (laughs) yeah like you know for good reason like we just can't have that in the game
1: it's a fucking outrage. Right? Yeah. About that, but I mean, um, there was one of the great rugby league telegraph combo headlines when they had all these drinks lined up on the front page. Of like yeah. Thirty-five.
0: So 35 yeah. Drinks. So I've got the figures here. So in an eleven-hour drinking binge, Noah had twenty-eight schooners, half a dozen stubbies, and half a bottle of wine.
1: The wine part always got me. Yeah. It's like, um, you know what? I feel like I just a
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: something sophisticated after this <laughs> <laughs> twenty-eight schooners. <laughs>
0: And so basically that formed the basis of his defense, and he actually got acquitted because he was found to have committed the act, the act of drunken thuggery, but the degree of intoxication was such that he didn't know what he was doing and couldn't have formed any intent to commit the offenses.
1: Well, the autonomy over your faculties is a key point there, so it's like... um... Legally, it's sound, right, that argument, but um, morally, it's, it's like yeah. you don't have 28 schooners you're to
0: And because it is a legal thing, there's precedence involved. And so there was a High Court decision in 1980, the O'Connor case, where that evidence had been accepted. So the magistrate's associate on the matter said, if Parliament or anyone else doesn't like it, it takes a simple sentence to change it. But the magistrate's not here to do that. He's a magistrate. He's bound by High Court decisions. He doesn't overrule Sir Garfield Barwick at the drop of a hat.
1: If anyone could understand that, it's rugby league. It's like, you know, if Mal says, you know, we're doing laps, we're doing laps, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. So probably the one good thing to come from this horrendous incident is the fact that the outrage was such that the law was changed. And so going forward, you couldn't use intoxication as an excuse to get away <laughs> with drunken thuggery. Yeah. <laughs> There was some collateral damage with Bradley Clyde called to the courtroom to give a witness statement and running up the steps to the courtroom and doing his calf muscle, which then ruled him out of the Super League test series against Great Britain.
1: Get him on a horse instead. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, But after the court decision, Noah was instantly sacked by the Raiders. And so it goes back to that earlier point where the incident happens and that doesn't cause the outrage. Noah, you know, goes on to play a full season, breaks the Raiders' try-scoring record in the process, and it's not till (laughs) the end of the year with the court case that there's any consequences for it.
1: You can't have a proper culture when you're doing stuff like that to win.
0: No, yeah.
1: you either got this, like, a moral standard or you don't.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so at this point, you know, too late in the game, they decided they did have some morality, sacked him instantly. This was despite, you know, Mal Meninga speaking in his defence, which, you know, maybe can be expected. What is less expected is the fact that the father of one of the victims also called for the Raiders to reconsider. He said, we were not happy with the court's decision, but we are not looking for the Raiders to put up a star chamber. What he really needed was a bit of support. This guy's been publicly humiliated. (laughs) Jeez, Dad. Like, I don't know what the guys go—is whether he was just a massive Raiders fan, but like <laughs> uh, he was sacked from the Raiders. His long-term future in Super League was, you know, put into question. Super League, as a result, made to look quite foolish. So David Gallup came out and said Nandruko has breached his contract and brought the game into disrepute. We doubt other Super League clubs will be prepared to sign Noah Nandruko in the circumstances.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: This was echoed by Daily Telegraph cheerleader-in-chief, Peter Fralingos, who said, Nandruku will then be without a Super League club because the other nine clubs won't have a bar of him. That means his only hope of employment will be at Redfern, where the South Sydney club has made a habit of giving sanctuary to the games Flotsam and Jetsam in recent seasons. But even they might balk at giving a start. Uh, I don't know whether South did even consider it and balk, but what I do know is that the one club who didn't balk was the Super League-aligned North Queensland Cowboys, who then goes on to sign Noah Nandruku, despite the proclamations of him being cast aside from Super League. So Noah goes on to finish his career at the Cowboys. Honestly, like I'm not here to like you know hang the guy, but it's not talked about enough. It's not even on his Wikipedia page. The one line is Noah Nandruku left the Raiders after an off-field incident in 1997. That's the only mention of it in his Wikipedia page.
1: Well, what gets me in this um, type of situation is the mob, how they'll go for a guy like Robert Louis or Ben Barber, and these guys are animals and can never be accepted in society ever again. And then another guy, dozens of examples like Nandruku, just skate. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. just be consistent or don't have this fake outrage.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you can say it's a different era, but there's you know, a number of blokes... In this era, with form, who you know have gone on to have full careers and be respected, and it not be talked about. So, but we'll move on for Noah Andruku and finish the Canberra Raiders story in 1997 with some other off-field movements, and this concerns Ricky Stewart. Who, mid 1997, it came out in the press that the Raiders were considering sacking Stewart. So this came out in the press. Stewart called a meeting with the players and Mal to discuss the situation. Stewart came out and said, the thing I want to emphasize is that all this has nothing to do with my relationship with Mal Meninga. Mal and I get on great. He's told me he wants me there, but I believe the decision is out of his hands. So it wasn't Mal's insistence. And the finger of blame quickly turned to Kevin Neal. Kevin Neal came out in the press and denied it. He said, I've heard rumors, but I can guarantee they're not true. It won't happen. Ricky's part of the furniture and our club captain. That assurance did not convince Ricky Stewart, who subsequently came out and said, they're ducking for cover now, but believe me, this is on. Friends in the club have told me the push is on to get rid of me.
1: I actually think it was the right move tactically. I would have been happy if he finished his career there. I think he deserved it. But if you're really serious about you know freeing cap space to build the next generation, it was the right move.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very interesting discussion, which I want to save for the end. But, you know, it should be said that he wasn't the only one who was being told to look elsewhere or rumours of him being told to look elsewhere. So at the same point, Bradley Clyde was mentioned as being moved on, Brett Mullins as well. So it was clear that something was happening and Canberra were thinking about their future. But that was in June. The story then died down for a while after that. And it didn't come up again until the end of the season where Laurie Daly actually, again, in rugby league fashion, puts his hand up uh, and saying he wants the Canberra captaincy. And Daly had actually wanted the job for some time. So in 1994, he was New South Wales captain and he just believed that he was a sure thing to be made Canberra captain in 1995. I think we mentioned it earlier that he... Was out in the press even talking about maybe moving on from Canberra.
1: Peculiar decision. Really peculiar.
0: To go with Sticky over Daly?
1: Yeah. I mean, I know he's the on-field guy, but I mean, Daly's a much better bloke. Yeah. it just seems weird to me.
0: I wonder how much of it does come into the referee thing. Like wanting a vocal, like niggling guy to be able to get in the ears of refs and try to assert some influence.
1: Perhaps it was a way to keep Sticky happy and at the club, and that yeah, sort of thing, yeah. Because Laurie would stay regardless. Yeah, you know? so I don't know. But the smart move would have been to have the uh, New South Wales captain that everyone respected as the captain.
0: Yeah, but what I find funny is like why Laurie Daly cared so much, and subsequently why captaincy is such a big thing within clubs, and the cause of tension when it you know switches between players.
1: Well, back then, it was a bigger thing, Captain captaincy. Now it's been watered down in the leadership group rubbish. Yeah, I, I mean, back then it was a big thing, and I suppose it's sort of like an authority thing—you're taking orders from someone. Yeah, with him, you think you know he's got that sort of happy-looking, wide-eyed face. You know, like you don't think he's not going to have any nickel in him, but he does.
0: Well, that's the thing—you can't be as good a player as he was without having that within you. Mm. Like no great of the game can do it without that ingredient when you're on the field. And I think there was something within him of wanting the respect as well. So what ultimately forced his hand in 1997 was Arco actually made some comments in the press that he thought in a United team, when the question of Australian captain came up, Arco said that, you know, it should go to a guy who was a club captain. So that seems to be what ultimately forced Daly's hand. And he said, well, I really want to be Australian captain, so I'm going to try to get the job as Canberra captain. And so he duly did that. Eventually, Mal decides to go with Laurie Daly as captain for 1998. And that basically made the situation devolve. So rumours of uh, falling out with Kevin Neal were basically confirmed in the press. There was tension for a while between Laurie Daly and Ricky Stewart. So Laurie's quote was, Ricky and I had a chat, and I told him that I, what I wanted to do, and obviously there was some tension there. I felt I was the right man for the job, and Ricky felt the same, so it was no surprise there was a bit of a standoff between the two of us for a while. We both sat down at the Kingston Hotel and had a good yarn about it one day. We both wanted the position, but in the end, Mel gave me the nod. To his credit, Ricky accepted the decision and continued on.
1: I respect that, two guys are uh, actually talking about it instead of like backstabbing each other.
0: Yeah, and when we talk about a feud between Ricky Stewart and Kevin Neal, it's interesting that, you know, a bit of tension with Laurie Daly, but they have a beer and it's resolved. I'm sure he was a bit annoyed with Mal Meninga for going with Daly, but again, it's Mal. He's a good mate. I've got the world of respect for him, so I can move on. But with Kevin Neal, it was a different story. Well, they always want to scapegoat,
1: don't they? It's The blame.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: In saying that, his name's come up in a lot of feuds. <laughs>
0: And from what I'm reading, he wasn't particularly popular within the Canberra team. And there was maybe a sense that Laurie Daly was always his boy, that he'd kind of favor Laurie Daly in certain situations. And Laurie Daly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 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 And so, like, Laurie Daly was one of the few in the team who got on with him quite well. So it was kind of like a festering wound that sprung open after the captaincy decision. And Ricky, after the decision was made, came out and said, I'm shattered by it, but it seems someone at this club wants to get rid of me. I just can't see any future for me at Canberra now. It's not hard to know where it's come from, and I'm after the bloke concerned for answers. I know he's been telling player managers and other clubs that I'll be up for grabs at the end of the year.
1: It's the age-old sporting club thing. Do you sacrifice your future to reward the past? It's like, you want to be like Melbourne, where it's club first. If you're contributing, you're in. If you're not, you're out. That's what you really want. You don't want, like, oh, the club owes him another contract, you know, two more years for him to like ride into the sunset. It's like, it's,
0: yeah. It's crazy. I think Kevin Neal didn't handle the situation particularly well, and that was by, like, going out in the press and making statements. So one of those was the Raiders were considering going after Joe Roth, who was the Star Union winger at the time. And in the press, Kevin Neal actually came out and said, "Oh, you know, if we get him... We're going to have to sacrifice some big-name players. All this was happening at the same time that there was rumours about Ricky Stewart. Basically, from that point on, Ricky Stewart like had no time for Kevin Neal. So basically, in October, John Fordham, Ricky Stewart's manager, said he was asked about Stewart's relationship with Kevin Neal. Fordham said, I'll answer that on the record. I don't believe he has one. Hmm. So basically, from then on, Ricky Stewart's time at the Raiders was going to be limited. So in July 1998, it was announced that Stewart and Clyde had both been told to find new clubs for 1999. And, you know, so they subsequently moved on, both going to the Bulldogs. And I want to go back now to your thoughts on the Raiders, you know, making the right decision, thinking about their future. I think that's very true. I think a clean out was justifiable given the climate of the time with. Salary cap returning, the fact that they were a veteran team whose on-field results kept on getting worse. Like it was clear that a change was needed for the Raiders to keep up.
1: And we know the Raiders respect the salary cap like no other club. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was more than justifiable. It was, um, it was a smart move. So I think he can be vindicated on that. The injuries kept piling up on them because they were old. So yeah, yeah. Neil's vindicated.
0: Yeah, vindicated, and the only reason it didn't work out was that the next generation were just not quite good enough. And there was heaps of buzz about Mark McClinton and Andrew McFadden in 1997 and beyond.
1: Looked good, didn't it?
0: And it seemed like the club was really putting their faith in that. But this stood out to me. They're called the Supermax in this article. I always remember them being the Mighty Max. Can you settle that? uh, Um
1: I remember Memory? both, actually. I remember both. Yeah, was, okay. Supermax was first.
0: Yeah. So maybe it's interchangeable. So this was from Dave Hedden's book on the Raiders. Uh, but he wrote, There was the emergence of the pairing dubbed the Supermax, Cappy McFadden and Mark McClendon, both about the same diminutive size and both wearing the same headgear. They brought back memories of the Heckle and Jekyll combination of <laughs> Chris O'Sullivan and <laughs> Ivan Henjack.
1: Henjack. <laughs> the old... um. References in Rugby League crack me (laughs) up.
0: But I really like that henjack O'Sullivan comparison. Yeah, So Raiders went from a serviceable, likable halves pairing to one of the best halves pairings of all time, and then subsequently went back to having a serviceable halves pairing.
1: Well, I've got a bit of a a comparison here, maybe a long bow, but the Hen Jack O'Sullivan were like two um, sort of zippy little jinking Alfie-type players, Mm. line-breaking-type running players, mainly. I'll compare them to an indie band, a jingle-jangle indie band, whereas Stuart was like the master uh, organiser, pastor, and kicker, and Daly was the Ferrari running player with ball skills. So it's like Mm. that was like the Oasis, the proper anthems, you know, the big songs. Yeah. Power guitar what do you think of that for a
0: comparison <laughs> well I, I think it is it's hard for me not to take it as a subtle dig at my love of jingly jangly <laughs> um, indie outfits so
1: it's um i'm, I'm not having to go at the smiths i'm a big smiths fan but uh, <laughs> the impersonated you know you know what i mean
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: <laughs> longbow city
0: I think it's been a while since we've had an Oasis reference in the show, so we were probably overdue. <laughs> but like, it's interesting, you know, Brisbane and Canberra, the two teams of the 90s, both going through this mini cleanout at the same time. You know, Brisbane institute a mini cleanout, rewarded with three comps in four years. Raiders do the same and for two decades are cast out into the wilderness, you know, so
1: well, they had better replacements in Brisbane.
0: Had better replacements and kept Alf, who Alf, more than Stuart, was able to navigate a changing game. And, you know, the jinking came back into fashion and he managed to, you know, finish his career at the elite level, which Stuart just couldn't do.
1: It's insane how he managed to do that. I mean, mm. he looked like an Oompa Loompa by the end. Yeah. Like, he's still breaking the line at will and, you know, just controlling everything. He wasn't an athlete by then. Like, unbelievable mm. how good he was.
0: Yeah. But regardless, the change was made. And, you know, late in 1998, Ricky Stewart walked off the field with tears in his eyes as his Canberra career ended. Clyde joins him at the Dogs. Daly stays at the Raiders. And, you know, in the year 2000, they all retire together, but with only Daly still in Canberra. So it, as a Raiders fan, knowing that, you know, the next generation didn't work out, would you have sacrificed the attempt just to see these three champions all leaving together?
1: No. I mean, I know a lot of fans would disagree with me on that, but I, I really think you could go for the team first model always yeah. in sport. But a- anyway, like, there's very few people get to become a one-club player. Everyone finishes no. at some um disappointing contract at a different club, and they're always remembered as for the great club they're at, so it doesn't even matter, really.
0: No, I mean, really, like, I can hardly even imagine Ricky Stewart in a dog's jersey. Like, for me, it's as if those years didn't happen. Uh, But happen they did, and that is where we'll end this episode. So um, a lot of interesting stories to come out of Super League in 1997 and the start of a real change in rugby league in terms of, you know, who the top players were. So I think this episode says a lot about where the game was at.
1: Yeah, very good episode, man. Interesting stuff.
0: And so in our next episode, we'll be back to talk about the grand finalists, Cronulla and Brisbane. So uh, hope you join us for that. And we will speak to you then. Bye-bye.